1: Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we encode your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Dr. Amy Edwards talks about zoology and getting paid to hug animals. But first up, here's news of digital DNA. The Opera House. Twist Biosciences have done a deal with the National Film and Sound Archives of Australia for a trial of DNA data storage. A video of Kathy Freeman's Olympic gold medal winning race was encoded onto DNA and then projected onto the sales of the Sydney Opera House. Long term data storage is a problem as every method we have breaks down in a very short period of time and so data has to be copied frequently to new media. It's also a problem because the amount of data that we're generating is growing faster than we can produce new storage. As well as having more space for data and storage that lasts longer than a few years, ideally we'd like recordings of historical documents, videos, music and films, as well as scientific data, to be available for future generations. DNA stores biological information about how to build organisms encoded into four amino acids, adenine, cysticine, guanine and thiamine, ACGT. DNA data storage might be the solution to our data problems. In 1999, a team from Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York stored encoded words in a segment of human DNA strands in the form of microdots. Each letter, symbol and number, was encoded as three of the four possible base letters. They encoded the message, June 6 Invasion, Normandy. In 2001, a Stony Brook University team in New York stored and retrieved from DNA the opening lines of Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. In 2012, George Church worked out that in theory... You could encode binary data into the four letters of DNA and fit 455 exabytes of information into one gram of DNA, where an exabyte is a million terabytes. His team digitally encoded a 659 kilobyte version of a book in several short strands of DNA. They chose zero to be represented as A or C and one as T or G. They encoded and read back when a church's own books called Regenesis, How Synthetic Biology Will Reinvent Nature and Ourselves. In 2013, Nick Goldman and his team at the European Bioinformatics Institute used Huffman lossless digital compression to encode 740 kilobytes of digital data, including Shakespeare's sonnets, Watson and Crick's classic DNA helix paper, published in 1954, a JPEG colour image, and an MP3 audio file containing an extract of the famous speech by Martin Luther King onto strands of DNA. In 2015, a team at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology encoded 83 kilobytes of text from the Swiss Federal Charter of 1291 and the English translation of the method of Archimedes into DNA using an error correction scheme. They next encased the DNA sequence in a microscopic glass bead like a fossil in amber. They subjected it to 70 degrees Celsius heat for a week to simulate 2,000 years of aging. This showed that inside the glass bead, the DNA was preserved. They dissolved the glass in dilute hydrofluoric acid to release the DNA so they could read it with polymerase chain reaction amplification. The DNA would have to be dried and encased in a glass bead again to be stored after reading. Later in 2015, a team from the University of Illinois worked out a system of rewritable data storage where they could take the DNA out of the glass bead, update the data, and then re encase the DNA in a new glass bead. In 2017, Researchers from the New York Genome Center and Columbia University developed a highly robust storage mechanism called DNA Fountain, which they used to store two megabytes of data, including a movie and a complete computer operating system. Later in 2017, a team from Harvard University used the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing tool to encode the pixel values of black and white low-resolution images of a human hand and a short movie of five frames of a galloping mare from Edward Mybridge's 1878 human and animal locomotion movie at 36 by 26 pixels. The data was engineered into a living population of bacteria. In March 2019, a team at the University of Washington worked with Microsoft to create a machine that automatically encodes data into DNA instead of people having to do it by hand. And the machine is also able to read the data back. The machine uses glass bottles of chemicals to build DNA strands and a tiny sequencing machine from Oxford Nanopore to read them out again. In March 2019, the team was able to store and retrieve just a single word, hello, or five bytes of data. The process took 21 hours, mostly because of the slow chemical reactions involved in writing DNA. In June 2019, Catalog Technologies, a startup based in Boston, encoded all of 2019’s Wikipedia 16 gigabytes of data, using technology similar to inkjet printers and a new method of coding with different combinations of pre-built DNA molecules. In November 2019, the United Nations Children’s Fund, UNICEF, asked to aspire science to encode the Convention on the Rights of the Child into DNA. Twist Biosciences synthesized the DNA on a microfluidic silicon chip before encasing the DNA in a microscopic glass bead for storage. In April 2020, researchers at the University of Illinois and the University of Texas demonstrated a new method of recording information in DNA that's not unlike the cardboard punch cards used in early computers. They used enzymes to leave small nicks in different locations on the DNA strand ...that can be used to hold and retrieve information with less errors. Now in September 2020, Twist Bioscience and Professor Grass from the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology... ...are teaming up for a range of ambitious projects. They're encoding a six-part Netflix TV drama about synthetic biology called Biohackers... ...into DNA for storage in glass beads... They're also working with the Arch Mission Foundation to encode an archive into DNA and then send that archive to the moon for long-term storage as a time capsule. The archive will feature, among other items, 10,000 crowdsourced photos and the full text of 20 books. The moon launch was planned for later in 2020, but I imagine that's been postponed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Twist Biosciences have partnered with the National Film and Sound Archive of Australia and the Olympic Foundation for Culture and Heritage for the 20th anniversary of the Sydney Olympics to create a DNA archive of Dawn Fraser winning the gold medal for her 400 metre final race. It's a pilot project to test the potential of DNA data storage technology. The DNA in microscopic glass beads is stored in a tiny vial at the National Film and Sound Archive. On the evening of the 25th of September 2020, they teamed up with the Australian Olympic Committee to celebrate both the preservation of this historic video on DNA and the anniversary of Freeman's race with a special projection of the footage on the sales of the Sydney Opera House. An alternative to storing the DNA in glass beads is to engineer the synthetic DNA into a living organism, like plants. You could just keep a big population of the plants alive in a garden, in hopes that enough will survive into the future to be decoded and rendered back into data. You could have a tree of knowledge, or engineer humans with DNA archives and DNA readers in our brains so we can inherit an out-of-date version of Wikipedia. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Tracking cats, sex ratios and cuddling animals. Dr Amy Edwards is a zoologist with the New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Service. We spoke by Zoom and I began by asking Amy what her latest research project is about.
2: So at the moment, I actually work on the feral cat research team. So I'm looking at sort of the best method to control feral cats in national parks. And then the work that we were doing in the video was to look at how feral cats are impacting the native species and whether our control methods on cats are being reflected with that next step into the native species sort of recovery.
1: Should I ask you first how you're doing that?
2: Well, the project's actually in its first year. So this year we're just getting baseline measures. We haven't started any treatments or trials or anything. So this year we're going to do an experiment where we're going to look at who actually takes the baits that National Park's put out. So we've got some baits that we'll be putting in front of cameras so we'll know what's happening to the baits, who's taking them, that sort of stuff. And then to see that sort of flow on, We'll also be catching cats and putting collars on them, tracking them through their rest of their life until the end of the project. And for the natives, we've got, and, and the predators as well, we've got a lot of cameras out in the field. So we monitor with lots of different cameras. And then we also do pitfall trapping twice a year in spring and autumn. And the pitfall trapping is what catches the small native animals. We've got reptiles during the day, and then reptiles and and small mammals at night.
1: So you must have to go into the field a lot.
2: Yeah. So this year it's been nearly 50% of the time. We've been out one week on, one week off, sort of since about February. We are due to go back out in two days' time, and we'll be out for three weeks. So that's a pretty big trip.
1: (laughs) And so you have to dig all these holes, the pitfalls, and then... How long do you wait before you go and check them?
2: So the pitfall holes we only dig in once because we've had to dig 450 and it's taken us weeks and weeks. We then run the drift fences across the top of the holes and they also stay out there. So when we're not in the field, we just have lids on the holes so nothing can get caught in them. So what we'll do when we head out next week is we'll pull all the lids off and everything's basically set up, ready to go, and we'll start checking that afternoon. And last time we opened traps in the morning at nine ten o'clock, and we had lizards by the afternoon. So it's, it's pretty quick. Each site we only trap for four nights, and that gives us a pretty good census of what's around.
1: And will this give you an idea of the number of feral cats that are predating on these animals?
2: The pitfalling that we're doing won't really give us an indication of feral cat predation but if we're able to bring the numbers down we may in the future see a rise in what would have been their prey so yeah what we're getting this time is just a baseline of who lives there how many there might be and it's all it's pretty simple stuff
1: and i guess in new south wales there's nothing that predates on the cats
2: yeah not not really you know, you might have something take kittens, an eagle or, or someone else that's hanging around, a dingo maybe, wild dog. But yeah, cats don't have a lot of predators themselves.
1: Do we have many dingoes in New South Wales?
2: Yeah. Oh. Huh. Yep. Yeah, we have dingoes, wild dogs, whether or not they're pure dingoes or however people tend to look at dingoes. But we've definitely got some sandy-coloured wild dogs walking around out there. I would say they're... They're covering most of New South Wales.
1: And how did you come to look at the effects of the feral cats?
2: So I've always sort of been interested in conservation projects. I did my PhD in my first postdoc on sort of captive breeding, sex ratios and that sort of stuff. And for me, it was sort of, it's conservation work, but it was one step removed. So I was sort of getting the information that maybe someone else could use to make a difference which is why I sort of moved into national parks. So now we're still doing research, we're on the ground, and we're you know, actually using the knowledge that we have and that others have to actually perform conservation work. So that's sort of how, why I moved into it.
1: And so that must be quite a career path. Did you decide from the beginning that conservation was why you were doing science?
2: Not really. When I first left school and started my Bachelor of Science, I actually started in chemistry and physics, which was really just because I had a really good chemistry teacher in high school. And then when I got to university, I realized that I didn't like chemistry at all. And what I actually wanted to do was just cuddle animals. So I did my honors and my PhD and decided that I was you know, going to go down the road of being a zoologist rather than a vet. I want to help animals, but I don't necessarily want to spend my days with cats and dogs and and dealing with ill animals that vets have, you know, sick and dying animals all the time. I'd rather something that's happy and healthy and running around the bush, but I still need to cuddle it. That's why I like trapping. (laughs) So I guess the conservation has always sort of been there, but yeah, it was probably more just the cuddling was how I got into it. I just need, just want to play with animals all day and have someone pay me to do it.
1: That's a large number of animals that you have to get all the information about, to to learn about, to be able to do your work.
2: Yeah. There's, I guess you get like a baseline level of information that kind of, for me, I'm always focused on mammals. So I know a little bit about birds and reptiles and, and fish, and I did a bit of marine, but even if you're focused on one group of mammals, you're just looking at so much variation and so much knowledge. And unless you specialize on one species, that lives in one area that doesn't have any variation, then there's just going to be so much that you don't know.
1: Tell me about the wallabies.
2: (laughs) So during a postdoc that I did at La Trobe University in Melbourne, I was working on Tamar wallabies over on Kangaroo Island. And we were actually looking at whether we could work out the sex of the sperm of the wallaby. So we would take a sample from a male and then take it back to the lab and essentially use um, pieces of DNA to make the sperm glow different colours if it had an X chromosome and would be a girl or a Y chromosome that would end up being a boy. And then we would sit in a dark room and count thousands upon thousands of sperm to see whether there was actually equal numbers, because science predicts that there should be. But in everything that we've ever measured, it's not. So we went over and, and studied this wild population of wallabies, and we more or less expected it to be 50/50. But we ended up seeing a huge Y bias, quite significant Y bias, so tending towards male offspring. And we thought, well, that's super weird. So we actually decided, like, really quick, pack our bags, let's go back and see what the babies are. So we went over and we started catching wallabies, and what we found was that the babies that were just being born, we were also male biased. And we thought maybe there's actually something here. But then we started looking at the older babies and it had flipped. And by the time the babies were sort of large pouch young, getting ready to leave the pouch, there was significantly more females. So what we think is happening is that mothers and fathers have different reasons for wanting sons and daughters. The fathers were invested in having sons. Well, the mothers were invested in having daughters and a lot of mothers that ended up with sons had lost them and started a new pregnancy and only the mothers who had daughters kept the baby until it was grown up. So it was this sort of conflict between what the parents wanted and in the end the mother won because she was the one carrying the baby.
1: It almost sounds like there'd be no males left.
2: I mean, that happens in some populations. That was why I was initially looking at, at sex ratios. It happens a lot in captivity. But the other way around, in captivity, you have a lot of boy babies and not a lot of girls.
1: So you were involved with Young tazzy Scientists and Science Week. What were you doing?
2: So I've been involved with the Young tazzy Scientists for about six years. I started in, I think, the second year of my PhD. And... When I started, it was I think I did one one week long road trip and I went out to schools and did 10 minute science shows and I wasn't overly confident at the time I was working on sex ratios and sex and there is no way to talk to seven-year-olds about that and to make that interesting. <laughs> and I really struggled and working with the young Tassie scientists and and you know, going for so many years, after I think about year three or four. I started doing sex shows in schools and I would talk to even the little kids about, you know, sex ratios and offspring and where, where do babies come from and who are mammals and in the end we would make butter from cream and we'd talk about, you know, butter and cream come from milk and why is milk important and mammals have milk and these little kids would get really into it and the older kids I would, of course embarrass them and actually talk about my research and sperm sex ratios and make them all giggle and the teachers would have a great time. And I think having so much fun is why I stuck around. In the end I was going out on multiple trips and I've been to every corner of Tasmania with the young Tassie scientists, visited so many schools and done so many shows and you just get this feedback from working with kids and with the public. And it just re-energizes your love of science, I guess, and why you're doing the things you're doing. And this year I've done it all by distance. I actually left Tassie four years ago and I've still been in the Young Tassie Scientists. So I've traveled back every year except for this year. And this year it was all all shot on video out in my national parks here.
1: And did you get any fun questions from the kids?
2: I actually, this year I had probably the most interesting question. Mm that I've ever been asked. So usually being a zoologist, they get, what's your favorite animal? And, you know, have you ever traveled overseas to see the lions? Um, And they're great questions, but I had one kid ask whether I'd ever gotten into trouble or what was the most dangerous thing that had happened while I was doing science. And that was a great question. I've definitely made some really questionable choices. Uh, so that was really fun to sort of, you know, share some experiences that I had with kids while I was, you know, travelling overseas and, and that sort of stuff and doing science in other places. And I think they really liked liked hearing that as well, that we all make bad choices sometimes.
1: <laughs> Does it get dangerous out there in New South Wales?
2: I mean, it, it can do, particularly, I guess, if you're doing nighttime fieldwork. New South Wales, Tassie, Victoria, I've done nighttime fieldwork in, in all of them. And there's there's often people out in the bush that maybe shouldn't be out there at 2am and, you know, we're trying to catch platypus or catch wallabies. And yeah, there's always someone hanging around and it can be a, be a little bit scary.
1: And with Conservancy, if you had a message for listeners about conservation particularly Australian wildlife is there anything you'd say to them about things they should do or not do
2: I think the biggest thing with conservation in Australia is education learn as much as you can educate people if you know interesting facts get people interested the only way we can save the animals here is if everyone falls in love with them and I guess the second thing is even though you're just one person you still matter your choices still matter. Obviously, big businesses could make a big difference, but that's not to say that the choices that you make at home and when you go out on bushwalks or go into national parks, the choices that you make still matter, even if it's just a one or two animals that encounters you or your litter or whatever you happen to be doing out there.
1: And so what will be the next steps with the Feral Cat Project?
2: So the Feral Cat Project is going to be running for the next I guess, four and a bit years. It's going to be pretty intense. We're hoping that in the next three to four years, we can develop a really good method to help get cats under control. And then in our last year, we're really going to take everything we've learned and try and have a really big impact on the national parks that we're working in and and see if we can't do something really good for the native species that are out there that, that just need to have a little less stress from a little less predators that don't need to be there.
1: And do you have anything for the people that might be looking at studying zoology, any advice?
2: My advice is always just to keep trying, just stay interested, stay focused. If there's something that you wanna work on and that you wanna do, if you wanna go and spend your days cuddling animals, just work hard, keep trying for it and you'll get there. I worked hard during school, during uni, And now I have a great job and I get paid really well to cuddle a lot of animals. It's pretty amazing. I definitely say if you're interested, you should follow it. It's a good dream. It's a good career.
1: Well, Amy, thank you very much.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: That was Dr. Amy Edwards from the New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Service talking about zoology, feral cats and cuddling animals. You can see the video of this interview and many others on the Diffusion YouTube channel. Subscribe and like at youtube.com slash c slash And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.fm in New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3 MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is now narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on Astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on Diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusion radio make a donation through paypal.me slash ian wolf i'm ian wolf join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on diffusion science radio
0: science is fun it helps you to learn to know and to appreciate